This episode of Desert Island Dishes is sponsored by Cook's Matches. Cook's Matches have been the mainstay of British kitchens for over 40 years and remain the match for both cooks and chefs to use in the kitchen. You will have seen those iconic yellow boxes in just about anybody who's anybody's kitchen. And you'll need some on hand this Christmas to light the Christmas pudding, a tradition we take very seriously in our house. But they are also obviously great for lighting cozy fires, candles, and for firing up the hob for a warming mug of hot chocolate. I wanted to tell you that Cook's Matches is hosting a live Instagram Q&A this month with the talented Amy Shepherd Food. Amy will be answering any Christmas cooking questions and even providing meal ideas for after the Christmas mayhem. To join this social event, give Cook's Matches a follow and simply head over to their Instagram on the 17th of December at 7pm. If you're listening to this the day it comes out, then that event is happening tomorrow. To find out more, head to the website www.cooksmatches.co.uk. Thank you very much to Cook's Matches. Hi, I'm Margie Namora and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off the Desert Island. Hi, I hope you're all well and that you're having a lovely week. I'm so excited to bring you another bonus episode with the one and only Hugh Fernley Whittingstall. In this episode, we talk about Christmas with the FWs and about the new River Cottage book celebrating all things Christmas and a little public service announcement. It's not too late. This would make a brilliant Christmas present. It really is a lovely book with lots of ideas and actually not too big a focus on the day itself, which I really like. I love chatting to Hugh and I hope you'll enjoy listening to this just as much. So hopefully you are somewhere sitting comfortably or wherever you are, you are happy doing whatever you're doing. And I will see you on the other side. My guest today is Hugh Fernley Whittingstall. Hugh is a chef, broadcaster, food writer and campaigner. The nation first got to know Hugh in 1997 with his TV show, A Cook on the Wild Side, in which he ate roadkill and all that the countryside hedgerows had to offer. And then a year later, through his River Cottage series and books, filmed at his River Cottage estate on the Devon-Dorset border. In fact, he's now done more than 20 cookery shows, and he's also tackled powerful issues in his documentaries like obesity, the illegal wildlife trade, fishing, and the war on plastic. He has an uncompromising commitment to seasonal and ethically produced food, and his concern for the environment has inspired a vast and loyal fan base. You may even have whipped up something delicious based on one of his recipe books, as he's a multi-award winning writer and the author of numerous best-selling cookbooks committed to seasonal and ethical food. Hugh has said, I don't particularly see myself as a celebrity chef. I haven't done a lot of cooking in the restaurant world. I'm really a journalist who got lucky. I did do a stint in a restaurant and wrote about food for a long time, and I made some TV programs, which more recently have had a campaigning element to them. But I have just found a way to do things that excite me, and hopefully they also excite other people too. Welcome, Hugh. Hi there. What a lovely introduction. I've never heard River Cottage described as an estate before. Oh, really? I, I, can, I can embrace that concept. <laughs> a first got, time for everything. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We have a few acres and a little bit of livestock, so why not? Hugh, when you're sitting in the middle of London, that definitely counts as an estate, I think. Okay, fair yeah. <laughs> So we're going to get on to your career and sort of how that evolved. But I'm really interested to know, what did you want to be when you were a child? What did you think your job was going to be? Gosh, I think I had a few of the sort of cliche kids' ambitions. I was definitely interested in being a fireman and... Oddly enough, that's something I looked into again, just as I was leaving university. I suddenly thought, maybe that is a really good thing to do. And a friend of mine and I started talking to each other and urging each other to think about giving it a go. But I, I had an, a, a, a travel plan to get to Africa and see wildlife and check out the world of conservation. And that sort of started to take over and has sort of come back round again recently. One thing I wasn't particularly thinking of doing as a child was becoming 
any sort of a cook or a chef, even though I love to cook from a very young age. That is so interesting, isn't it? I really wasn't expecting you to say firefighter then. And I'm trying to think because so often there's a link between the things that we dream about doing really early on and what you end up doing. But I don't know if there is a link there, Hugh. Well, well, the the other thing I was definitely very, very engaged with uh, as a child was the world of wildlife and watching stuff on telly. David Attenborough was a hero from an early age. And that was an itch I definitely needed to scratch. And in a way that has sort of come round because although I ended up in the food world, it's always been informed by a sense of the wider environment and the consequences of of our food choices and how that fits into the natural world. And I've been lucky enough, as you mentioned early on, to make some documentaries that, that have got the environmental issues to the fore, like the plastic series and the illegal wildlife trade. So the conservation bug has never been far away from the the food thing. But the fireman thing never quite happened. I think we can say that. (laughs) But it's never too late, Hugh. Well, I was about to to say exactly that, Margie. (laughs) I think maybe that's your project for next year. Who knows? Who knows? And the notion of luck. Do you really believe that you're just a journalist who got lucky? Do you think if you were starting out now and you tried to replicate your exact career, do you think that's something that you could achieve? Do you know what? I think it would be really hard because I think the world of television is a bit less, it's more risk averse and it's kind of folds in on itself and it likes to replicate things that it knows works. I don't think I'd have got the TV break in the same way that I did where I just sort of found myself pitching an idea that seemed a bit mad and exciting to me and Channel 4 decided to take a chance on it. I think that sort of luck is is probably harder to come by now than it was 25 years ago when it happened to me. And when you were asked by Jeremy Vine the question of what makes us human, your answer was cooking, which I absolutely loved. And it, and it ties in with the whole premise of this podcast, which is how food transcends mere necessity to become this all-important element that sits at the heart of families and friendships. But I wondered, do you worry that many people are moving away from the sense of occasion around food and that it's actually becoming a bit too functional? I do worry about that, but I also feel that people are moving back to it as well. We live in such a strange time when the food industry is is a sort of example of of what's happening in all sorts of areas. But, you know, there's the march of progress and industry and the desire for everything to be quick and easy and instant. And that drives a lot of the way that uh, that food is produced and indeed grown. It's a huge industrial project and indeed a multi-billion dollar industry telling us, more or less trying to get us where they want us, telling us what we should eat. And, and it's pretty powerful and successful at that. At the same time, there's a backlash. There's lots of people who don't want to be dictated to and want to make their own choices and, and see perhaps more than ever the value of going out and foraging for wild foods and growing something yourself in your back garden or on an allotment or even on your windowsill and who who don't want to sort of take dictation from the industrial food complex and want to find a better way. So I think we, we, we're sort of, we're, we're winning and losing at the same time. And I just hope we can get better at winning and more resistant to the dictation that the industry wants to give us. Yeah, hopefully it will be one of those things where the, the louder they dictate, the more we push back against it, because people in general don't really like being told what to do, do they? <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're right. And we are seeing that backlash and that resistance. But it needs to gather even more momentum because so many things are at stake. Our, our health is at stake. You know, we're, we're eating far too much food that's making us ill. And that's the processed food. Really, it is. I mean, that's just a fact that the the more processed food is, the, the less good it does us. And so, it, you know, there's never been a more important time to resist the world of industrial ultra-processed food and find a better way. I know that your mother was a brilliant cook and threw a lot of amazing sounding dinner parties in the 1970s. So let's talk about the first Desert Island dish. And that's a dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Well, it could have been one of her classic dinner party dishes, I I, I guess. Uh, But I was particularly involved with the dinner party desserts. I had a sweet tooth and I I basically learnt to cook by cooking puds and treats. But the dish I keep coming back to, the the Proustian Madeleine for me, 
uh, the memory is of my mum's shepherd's pie. And perhaps it's because in a world where basically anything sweet would turn my head and and make me excited, this is the first savoury dish I can remember really being grabbed by and enthusing about. And partly that was because I was involved often in in the making of it. And it was always made with a leftover leg of lamb. You know, we had traditional Sunday lunches, uh, often enough of of a roast leg of lamb. My mum would always buy a whole leg or a whole shoulder because she wanted those leftovers. And sometime around the middle of the week, Tuesday or Wednesday, we'd turn what was left of the leg of lamb or the shoulder of lamb into a shepherd's pie. And there was a particular ritual involved. We had one of those crank-handled old mincers that clamps to the side of the kitchen table and you you know you feed in the little chopped up bits of meat by hand being careful not to feed your fingers into the mincer (laughs) but I was allowed to turn the handle and I wasn't really allowed to push the meat in while she was turning the handle because (laughs) she was quite anxious about the idea of my fingers coming through the little holes squiggly little holes at the other end a lot along with the mince lamb (laughs) anyways together somehow we put what was left of the Sunday roast lamb through the mincer, along with an onion. And my mum would mince the onion too. She didn't chop it. She put it through the mincer, sometimes sort of squished. I remember clearly that she would press a piece of onion next to the lamb because the lamb was more grippy than the onion and the, the lamb would help take the onion through the mincer. And when she'd put all the leftover meat from the lamb and some wedges of from one large or maybe a couple of medium onions. She put one more through, thing through the mincer, which was sort of to clean it. And that was a, a lump of bread. She'd rip up a slice of bread and put that through the mincer. And uh, that was good because it got the sort of fatty bits of the, uh, uh, of the meat and just cleaned the mincer, not like cupboard clean, but it started the job of cleaning the mincer very effectively. And then all of that would go into a frying pan. The, the minced lamb, onion, and the little bits of bread would all go into a frying pan, and she'd fry it up, get a good sizzle going, brown the meat, and then if there was any leftover gravy from, from the roast, that would go in, and then a squish of tomato paste and a dash of Worcester sauce, and if it was looking a bit dry, maybe a trickle of water or stock, until we had this lovely, delicious, very, very savoury mince in a rich sauce. And that would be spread into the pie dish. And on top would go lots and lots of creamy mash. And the thing, the other job I got that I really coveted was making a pattern on the mashed potato with a fork, (laughs) scratching up. So important, this, because that's what makes it all crispy and a, a little bit burnt and golden. If you have a smooth surface on the mash, there's there's less to burn, less crispy bits to be had. But if you fork it up into those little peaks and troughs and little waves uh, with the fork, then you get a wonderful crispy top on your shepherd's pie. Oh, that is just bringing back so many memories. I mean, it's just amazing how something so simple can be one of the best things that you ever eat. It still is an absolute favourite. And I I make it often enough, you know, whenever we have enough leftover lamb or sometimes goat, I did make a delicious shepherd's pie recently with a leftover leg of roast goat, which we'd reared ourselves. That was a particularly delicious piece of meat and a particularly lovely shepherd's pie. And I do it in much the same way, following that exact tradition. I don't have a crank-handled mincer. I actually chop the meat by hand. But apart from that, the the recipe's the same. It's just simple meat, onion, leftover gravy, a little bit of tomato paste, and just a dash of water or stock to bring it all together. Mm, Also, it's so fun using like a leftover roast because each time it's going to be a little bit different and taste a tiny bit different, isn't it? And that's sort of part of the fun. Yes, it means, and the consistency you get from a leg of uh, a leg is different from the consistency you get if you've roast a shoulder, because I tend to cook a leg a little bit pink, whereas I tend to cook a shoulder longer, so it's almost falling off the bone. So the texture of a shepherd's pie with shoulder of lamb is almost like pulled lamb. It's kind of shredded, whereas with a, a leg you've got chopped up little pieces that have got a little bit more texture, almost like little pieces of meat in a stew. Both delicious, but as you say, totally different. Hugh, why did we record this just before lunch? <laughs> I'm so hungry. <laughs> uh, me, me too. Uh, and I'm just I'm already starting to think about what's in the fridge. But <laughs> unfortunately, there's no leftover lamb. 
And you'll have to indulge me. What was a typical menu at one of your mum's famous dinner parties? Did it involve a lot of gelatin? Yeah, absolutely. There was gelatin and gelatin might feature in both the starter and the dessert. I tend to remember the starters and the puds better than the main courses. But there was a thing she used to do. There was a jellied ring of tomatoes. So it was like a tomato puree set with gelatin and into a sort of moulded into a ring, which she would fill with prawns, mm. which would have cocktail sauce on them. That was one starter. There was another thing called egg mousse, which sounds almost like a kind of tautology, but it was basically, it was a sort of double egg because it was it was chopped hard-boiled egg and more egginess made into a mousse set with gelatin, which was served with caviar. And I'm putting little quote marks around my caviar as I say that, because of course it wasn't real caviar, it was fake lumpfish roe. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, but egg mousse and caviar was a, a, another one. And sometimes that would have little bits of jellied consomme sprinkled over the top. As Ooh, well. so it, wow. Triple, triple gelatin, <laughs> triple gelatin. <laughs> then classic desserts, she used to do profiteroles, which I got quite involved in making. I was a one point quite a damp hand at making profiteroles she filled them just with whipped cream not anything sort of custardy um, but just filled with whipped cream with a delicious dark chocolate sauce or sometimes black forest gatto she had a lot of this came from katie stewart's times cookery book which was a brilliant book that must have come out i guess in the early 70s and i Still got a, a paperback copy over here, but my mum had this amazing hardback with a puffy white jacket on it, sort of, and I, I, apparently it was the sort of wedding present gift edition. It, it was all beautifully, uh, it was a sort of big, kind of almost like coffee table size book with nice illustrations and big print. But the distinctive thing about in fact, th this particular copy of it had been lent to my mum by a friend of hers just after we got a puppy, a Labrador puppy called Rex. Rex somehow managed to chew off the spine of this very new book. Oh, no. So my mum my had to buy a, a pristine copy for her, for her friend to replace it, but we got to keep the one that had the, the dog-chewed spine <laughs> and then very rapidly developed lots of other marks, and mainly from my sticky fingers, uh, from the favourite recipes that we cooked and all the kind of cake chapter and the pudding chapter had very very grubby cocoa and chocolate and coffee stained pages uh, stuck together and generally kind of gleefully you know much used that's the kind of book and and the kind of era actually where i just imagine every dinner party you go to everyone's kind of cooking from the same book and so you end up eating the same menu time and time again that's the impression that i get from the 1970s Yes, there were there were probably a, a short list of classic tomes of which that would have been one. No doubt Robert Carrier would have been another, but my mum didn't go for him. She went for Katie Stewart and a little bit of Elizabeth David on the mm. side. I googled the most popular 70s food and whilst there were some delicious things, which I, I'm a huge fan of the prawn cocktail, there was something really bad that I came across which... I think this might be the worst offender. Are you ready? It's bananas covered in ham and hollandaise. So kind of like an eggs benedict, but with bananas no, instead of a muffin. No, wrong, wrong. And you already know that, that it's going to be the wrong kind of ham as well involved in <laughs> also that. Also the, the very... photo that, yeah, the photo that went along with it was, um, it didn't look very appetizing, Hugh. No, no, that's worse than pineapple on a pizza. Oh yeah, I'm not a fan of that either. Let's pause there and talk about the second desert island dish. And that's the first dish that you learnt to cook. Right. Well, I, I'm not going to cover myself in glory with this one. I think this may have been the first thing a lot of kids learnt to make. Peppermint creams. I, I mentioned the sweet tooth. You know, we. I'm glad I got the shepherd's pie in first because obviously it has genuine virtue. But peppermint creams was really just edible sugar-flavoured Play-Doh, really. I mean... It was just it wasn't just sugar flavored. It was just sugar, icing sugar with a little bit of egg white to bind it together, and a few drops of peppermint essence and a little bit of green coloring. And you squidge that together until it's like a paste that you can roll out. And it's like rolling out pastry instead, but instead of flour, it's icing sugar. So you're dusting with icing sugar, and I mean the whole thing is about ninety seven percent icing <laughs> sugar. And then you roll it out and you stamp it out into little rounds. And you leave them on a, a, a kind of 
cake tray, you know, the, the sort of mesh tray to dry, to semi-dry. And I absolutely loved them. I mean, I, I mean, half the mix w- went into peppermint creams and the other half was on my fingers and in the bowl <laughs> and got eaten and generally kind of consumed uh, and made me feel quite sick, but not sick enough to put me off doing it again uh, as soon as possible. I remember making those such a satisfying colour, but I actually, I remember making them more than I remember eating them. I, I, I remember both. And I still have a, 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 a soft spot for mint. And the peppermint cream project got a little bit more sophisticated as I as I got older. And I started dipping them in chocolate. Oh, yes. And sometimes I would put one half in chocolate, try and sort of hold them and put the top half in chocolate and turn it the right way up so that it just had chocolate over the top. But then I started half dipping them you know doing that thing where you you dip it sideways so one half is dipped in chocolate but the thing that was really hard and i i did i was i became obsessed with bendix bitterments the original bendix bitterment it turns out the chocolate is almost 100 percent chocolate it's got no sugar in but the but the peppermint filling is very very sweet so you couldn't really buy chocolate that was that dark and it was quite hard quite hard to get really good dark cooking chocolate so i was probably using i don't know my we did have that minier chocolate you know the one that comes in the green oh uh, yes yeah posh french cooking chocolate or we had bourneville so they ended up definitely a little bit too sweet because you had sweet chocolate on the sweet peppermint cream but they looked great and they got handed round at the bridge table uh you know which was often the you know, what was happening after the 70s dinner had been consumed. Yeah. <laughs> also, it, it being super sweet doesn't sound like that would be a problem for you, Hugh, back in the day. No, no, that was that was really set my tooth on that very <laughs> sweet journey, which I have slowly been weaning it off in quite a sort of actually careful and thoughtful way down the years. But but the instinct is still there. I'd still I still love a sweet treat. After school, you went to Oxford, where you studied philosophy and psychology. And I think that you said you really enjoyed the moral philosophy aspect, and that actually your final thesis turned into the introduction to the meat book that you wrote years later, which I really I loved reading that because I think so often the degrees we do at university are kind of redundant in later life, but yours was very practically, you know, useful. Yes, I, I, I'm sure I didn't know that that was going to happen, but we, I do remember having tutorials about the, the the ethics of of meat production and writing an essay about it and then when i came to write my river cottage meat book i wanted to be very clear about the decision to eat meat is not one to be taken lightly even by the most enthusiastic carnival in fact i would say especially by enthusiastic carnivores we should think very carefully about what meat we choose and how often we eat it and we should respect it and regard it as a treat and i absolutely stand by that now more than ever now as in fact i'm encouraging more and more people to put plants first and really see meat as quite a a rare treat and of course i've got plenty of time for anyone who decides that they don't want to eat meat at all so the the opening chapter uh, of my meat book is called meat and right and it's basically a a fairly uh full-on discussion about the ethics of eating meat Mm, I really like that. It sort of comes full circle. And after graduating, you set off for Africa, which you've already briefly mentioned. You went with a friend with the aim to write a book about the efforts to save wildlife in the sub-Saharan continent and about the future of conservation. So tell us a little bit about that time. Well, that that's the idealism of youth, isn't it? Where we thought we'd just pop over to Africa <laughs> and ha- help them solve the conservation crisis over there. Very kind of arrogant in a way, uh, and that that sort of uh, quickly went out of the window. But it was an amazing journey, and but uh, we were very lucky because we were commissioned to write a, a paper that gave the gave the trip a kind of purpose. We 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 wrote something for a symposium hosted by the Endangered Wildlife Trust, and that gave us a kind of calling card to lots of different game reserves, but also to interview the conservationists and talk to local people because there was a sort of three-cornered conflict in in, in in Africa that still pertains in a large way to this day. There's the, the conservation bodies whose principal interest is to look after the wildlife. And then there are local people who need the wildlife as a resource and need the land as a resource and can't really survive without it. And so balancing that, the human needs with the long-term uh, sustainability of the wildlife 
is, well, it's an almost impossible balance, especially in a very complicated uh, set of countries. But I mean, it's a, that th this is globally the case. And guess what? We haven't, uh, in some ways, you could say we haven't really got any better at conservation, or certainly we haven't got become more successful at it, because the situation is considerably worse now than it was when I was lucky enough to visit in 1988. But we are talking right now about the urgency of these issues, you know, both for the, the sake of our climate and for for biodiversity. These these issues get they're not niche anymore. But there's perhaps a certain irony in fact that they've they've become so urgent because for so long they did seem a little bit niche. You know, if you're a conservationist, you were, you know, you weren't quite in the mainstream. You were off hugging trees and worrying about things that a lot of people didn't worry about. And perhaps that still is the case, but I think, you know, we're more likely to see, uh, we are seeing more, certainly more headlines about the crisis in conservation and biodiversity in the natural world uh, than we ever did when I was making that trip 40 years ago. Well, yeah, obviously conservation has clearly been something that's that's been important to you for a very long time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it, it remains so more so than ever, really. I mean, I'm lucky to live in a beautiful part of Devon where we are. I mean, I, just as I was talking to you now, I was looking at two kestrels uh, flying, zooming around together above the trees, just a hundred yards uh, in front of me. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm very, very spoiled in this part of the world. That is slightly different to the view that I'm looking at right now, Hugh. <laughs> which I've got some pigeons. <laughs> Oh, well, that's great, though. I yeah. mean, you know, they've got their charms, too, without a doubt. That's true. <laughs> Lots of character. Let's pause there and talk about the third desert island dish, and that's the best dish you've ever eaten. I found this one really, really hard. I've been incredibly lucky to eat some wonderful, wonderful meals in some extraordinary places. Also, my, my mum's shepherd's pie is still right up there, without a doubt. But we've, we've talked about that at some length. So let, let's come up with something a little bit different. One of the most memorable things I've ever eaten that I've actually recreated on a few occasions, and, and but it never, never quite nailed it the way that it was nailed the first time I had it, was a porcini lasagne cooked by Pierre Kaufman and Mauro Brigoli in Hampshire, after a day's fishing, and that was at least 22 or three years ago. And Mauro was somebody, a, a lovely man, who I met doing some filming. Uh, he showed me how to make salamis. He was the first person who, who gave me a, a, a demonstration on curing meats in a traditional Italian way. And he showed me to, how to make copper and salamis and uh, various uh, spicy sausages, which he hung up in his fireplace in his lovely restaurant in the New Forest. And we became friends. And um, every year he used to invite a few friends fishing on the River Test, trout fishing. And one of the other guests was Pierre Kaufman, who, who I'd never met before, but was in deep reverence of. He's one of the great pioneer chefs of, in, in London in the 80s and 90s and uh, had a wonderful restaurant. He was particularly famous for his pig's trotter dish, a dish of pig's trotter stuffed with, among other things, wild mushrooms. But that was a, a great dish that Marco Pierre White went on to cook as a tribute to him. Uh, but on this day, we had, I suppose you could say, humble affair, but not much humbler because this lasagna was made with freshly gathered seps or porcini or penny buns. Belita sedulis, the ultimate forager's mushroom, thinly sliced homemade pasta, but otherwise a pretty classic lasagna, but just very, very generous, no, no mince, very, very generous layers of a porcini, which had been gently fried in a little butter and a little bit of garlic. And then the thinnest layer of parma ham. So yes, there was a bit of meat, but there was no, no mince. But so that was the layers. It was pasta, bechamel, generous quantities of sliced fresh porcinis and the thinnest layer of parma ham and a lovely cheesy topping. And that just kind of blew me away. We worked up an appetite. I don't seem to remember the fishing was all that successful, certainly not, <laughs> not on my count. I don't think I managed to land a, a fish that day. We had a, a long day on a late summer day with a, just the beginning of the autumn chill. And um, I remember the basket of mushrooms appearing before Pierre dashed off to to make this uh, lasagna 
and it was just sensational. That sounds absolutely incredible. Like nothing, I've never had anything like that before, I don't think. Well, I, I cook a, a sort of version of it that, that is a bit humbler. I do love to make a, a veggie version of lasagna with a, a really generous layer of mushrooms. And if I can put any wild mushrooms in there at all, hopefully self-gathered, but if not, some dried porcini go very well, mixed in with some regular mushrooms. And then I do a layer of kale. So you've a, a generous layer of mushrooms and then a layer of kale and the kale is stirred into the bechamel but still quite a lot of green stuff in there so mushroom and kale lasagne is a bit of a a favorite of mine and it sort of definitely derives from it's a sort of my little tribute to that amazing lasagne i had on the banks of the river test about 25 years ago. That sounds incredible. I wondered for that whether you were going to go with the meal that you cooked for your wife and the midwife at two in the morning after the birth of your first child, which also sounded delicious. Sausages and cream spinach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. That was pretty memorable now that you mention it. But I, I, I didn't want to go anything for any anything self-cooked. I okay, yes. I want to put, put some credit in in one of my culinary heroes direction that's very modest Hugh. so after you got back from africa you got a job at the river cafe one of the most prestigious restaurants in london and i wondered what were you thinking at that time did you think that you wanted to try your hand at becoming a professional chef had that sort of been something you were thinking about in africa or how did that come about no, that was a bit of a left turn. I mean, I was a very keen cook that my um, youthful enthusiasm for cooking had stayed with me. And I, I love cooking. But I had come back from Africa, and I was really just trying to find a way to get back to Africa to do more to, to I was came back to try and get a book commissioned. We'd, we'd written this, this paper, which was reasonably well received. I was still very excited about the world of conservation. And came back to try and put a publishing deal together that would take me back to Africa to spend more time doing them, that. And I got a job at the River Cafe to earn a, a bit of cash and, and try and save up my return fare to Africa. And that never happened because I somehow got really into this whole thing, uh, cooking at the River Cafe. I had a lovely time. It was amazing cooking with Rose Gray and Ruthie Rogers and other brilliant people like Sam Clark. It just made me think that maybe there was something about the world of food that was possibly even trumping the... I'm not sure I thought that straight away, but I mean, I, I couldn't... Uh, n nobody wanted to give me a book deal aged 22 to write about conservation in, in Africa, I rapidly found out, and I could see that was going to be hard to pull off. And I just got more and more distracted and delighted by the world of cooking and restaurants. That's so exciting. And I think you were there for six months. So what were your working, I think, as a, as the pastry chef? What were your lasting memories of that time? Well, I did a bit of everything. It was a really nice kitchen in that respect. Everyone got to do uh, lots of different things. I ended up doing quite a lot of the desserts because I was just so keen on it and others a bit, a bit less so. But I just remember, above all, learning the importance of the quality of ingredients. And Rose and Ruthie would eagerly anticipate the day's deliveries and spend a lot of time sort of pouring over them and making sure that the fish was incredibly fresh and the vegetables were all that they wanted them to be. And it wasn't at all unusual for them to send something back or get on the phone and say, this isn't good enough, you need to do better for us. And that attention to detail, to the, to the provenance of the ingredients has always stayed with me. And, and I learned a few useful skills there too. I learned to butterfly a leg of lamb. I learned to clean brains. They used to put calves' brains on the menu there quite a lot. That's, uh, that's something I probably wouldn't do these days, although I do uh, occasionally make a brawn from the heads of, of our pigs that we raise at River Cottage. But uh, yeah, all sorts of things. And I learned to prepare cuttlefish and squid and, and all sorts of useful things that, and to make pretty good pasta. And so, yeah, lots of lots of skills that I collected along the way. But above all, this this reverence for the best possible ingredients was the, the lasting legacy of, of my time there. One thing I never really learned was to be tidy in the kitchen. <laughs> and that ultimately, I think, probably cost me my job. I was let go from the River Cafe uh, after six, seven months, which I wasn't particularly happy about 
but uh, that was sort of fair enough. And I immediately had to start thinking about, well, you're very interested in this whole food thing. You've just had an amazingly lucky opportunity. Do you want to go and work in another restaurant kitchen? And I quite quickly realized that the answer to that was not really. I, I just, I, I knew that after that experience, to take it seriously, I was probably going to go and have to work in a in a kitchen with a very different atmosphere where where uh, where if I was untidy, there'd be uh, probably my physical health at stake. Uh, <laughs> and then, you know, the flying stock pots and the dangerous knives and the, uh, and, and all those kind of tra- traditional scary culture of the which was still pretty prevalent uh, in the restaurant scene at that time. Uh, or that was my sense of, of what it would have been like and i didn't fancy that but i did think i could write about food I, it gave me sort of confidence that i i knew what i was talking about if i wrote about food so I, that's what i started to do i became a, a journalist writing mostly about food i think that's very encouraging because i think you could have just carried on down that path because it was such an amazing opportunity but actually perhaps it wasn't quite right for you and i think so often we see something like being fired as a, as a failure, but actually it really can be a blessing in disguise. So if there's anyone out there listening who's just been fired, maybe it just means that that particular job wasn't right for you and that there's something better out there. You're so right, Margie. That's a, you probably wouldn't have persuaded me of that the day after I'd been fired from the River Cafe. But looking back, it was definitely an opportunity. Definitely one door closed rather abruptly and others opened, which I'm very grateful for. Let's pause there and talk about the fourth Desert Island dish. What is your favourite sandwich? Well, I thought about this and I just kept coming back to, sorry to be so boring, but cheese and pickle. And not just any cheese, not just any pickle, and above all, not just any bread. Bread making is the one bit of the kitchen duties that is pretty much out of my hands. My wife is a fantastic baker and she bakes the most brilliant sourdough bread several times a week, uh, which is consumed with great relish by me and the rest of the family and anyone who happens to drop by. Uh, So it's a relatively high production turnover just because we all like it so much. So that's the bread in my cheese and pickle sandwich. And the cheese is proper cheddar. Montgomery cheddar's a good one. There's there's quite a few nice cheddars around here. I'm actually partial to something which some people would say isn't quite proper cheddar. It's a Godminster organic cheddar, which is a milled cheese, i.e. it's been it's been pressed. It has got a wonderful cheddary flavour, but a purist would regard it as a cheats cheese. But it is one of the um, box schemes that we use uh, it has it as an option. So it does occasionally get ticked and that comes through as well. And then some, a, a kind of nice chutney, homemade chutney, which at the moment, uh, a few weeks, I had a glut of um, apple, early apples and courgettes that, that sort of coincided. So I quite often make up chutneys. You just throw in what you've got into a pan, put a handful of spices and maybe a few raisins and things like that. And uh, not too much sugar because you've got lots of sweetness there with the fruit. So you really don't need it. So I made that half a dozen jars of that and we're about halfway through that already. So yes, I mean, I, I, I like making quirky sandwiches as well and all sorts of leftovers get turned into sandwiches, but you actually can't beat a really good cheese chutney sandwich. And occasionally, occasionally a couple of lettuce leaves go in there, sort of just extra sense of virtue, but they, they're they not really necessary, to be honest. No, I like how you preface that by saying that was a boring choice. That doesn't sound boring to me at all. That sounds absolutely delicious. Well, it's not an absolute cutting edge of sandwich originality, but for me, that's not what sandwiches are about. No, that's not. There's a time and a place for that, but it's not. It's just, I've got... I have to give an honourable mention to uh, actually, I mean, if you're talking about hot sandwiches, the, a hot mackerel sandwich, a hot mackerel bap with a cheaty tartar sauce on it, fillet of mackerel off the barbecue or just even fried up in a pan, put into a warm roll with some mayonnaise and chopped gherkins and a few capers, maybe even a little bit of chopped hard-boiled egg. When we were doing fish fight, we were encouraging people not to just get constantly locked into the same old fish, cod, haddock, tuna, salmon and prawns, which between them represent over 80% of the fish we consume in the UK. Now, it's absolutely key to 
good eating and healthy eating, but also sustainable eating that we eat in a diverse way. And this applies to fish. We've really got to spread the load and, and eat lots of different types of fish, not just hammer the same old ones harder and harder. So we were campaigning to get fish and chip shops to take up the mackerel BAP with some success, I might add. They were dozens and ultimately hundreds of fish and chip shops up and down the country. And, and quite a few of them still do now offer either a hot mackerel sandwich or another fish sandwich that you can take away. And the hot, hot fillet of fish in a warm bun with a little mayonnaise and something, again, it's the pickle, isn't it? In this case, just a few capers and a bit of chopped uh, gherkin will do the job. Phew, that sounds absolutely delicious. So your first foray into TV was a cook on the wild side. How did the TV part of your career come about? We did pitch Cook on the Wild Side to Channel 4, and we pitched it as a wild food show. And part of the pitch was our eccentric vehicle, the gastro wagon, that that, uh, that had a, an upturned boat on the roof that was actually a sleeping compartment, and the back of it folded out into a kind of mobile kitchen, which was actually quite well equipped. And it was brilliant fun driving around the UK and uh, learning. I mean, it was, I mean, I knew a little bit about wild food but really the point of the series was for me to go and learn from people who knew more than I did so I was meeting people along the way who would teach me the ways of the hedgerows and some old traditions and we actually you know we did we were we had a nice mix of hedgerow greens and mushrooms and nuts and berries and some protein so there was a bit of fish and shellfish gathering and a bit of meat along the way but it was pretty eclectic sort of old school hunter-gatherer foraging really. Yeah. And I think that's what makes such great TV when when the presenter isn't necessarily the expert, but they're learning. And, and that's the way that the public learn as well. I think that's really appealing to the person watching. Well, that's pretty much how it's been for me down the years, first with Cook on the Wild Side and then River Cottage, where I was basically learning to be a smallholder, learning the responsibilities of keeping pigs and looking after livestock and and uh, how to grow vegetables with a reasonable amount of success. But always there was always a, a guru or a, a local person who showed me the way, and that was wonderful. They were they were great characters, so, I, so such fun uh, meeting them and working with them down the years, and, and many of them are still friends. Uh, John Wright, indeed, who taught me everything I'd forgotten about mushrooms, and sadly I'd forgotten quite a lot of it, but uh, you know, he still runs our foraging courses at River Cottage, which is terrific. Let's pause there and talk about the fifth desert island dish, and that's the dish you eat the most often. Oh, well, it's funny coming after the conversation we just had, because this is actually probably going to sound A, pretentious, and and be even mendacious, but it is actually true. I was, because I was just thinking about it. I mean, maybe that cheese and pickle sandwich, it comes out a bit more often than, than this. And maybe there are one or two other family favorites. But one thing I realize I eat a lot of is nettle soup. Mm. And that's quite simply because every spring, when the nettles are at their most perfectly uh, kind of soupable, which is when before they're full grown or going to flower, but when they're about a foot high with this lovely, fresh, green, vibrant crown of nettle leaves on top, you pick the top kind of eight or so leaves off of a spring nettle. And we make great vats of soup. We make it, you know, several times we make a big batch and we have a, a bowl there and then, and then we put quite a lot away in the freezer. And then it comes out when I want a quick lunch or when, that, when, I've, when I've had too many of those cheese and pickle sandwiches, I would eat something really delicious and, 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 and good for me for lunch today. And I just get a, a, a little um, box of the nettle soup out the freezer and share it often with my wife. We are, we are often both working at home and take a break to have lunch together. So we have nettle soup and not quite every week, but certainly a through the nettle season, maybe once or twice a week. And then uh, the frozen stuff comes out pretty regularly too. Mm. And I love it. It's just a kind of thing that um, I would feel, I mean, I know that right now, for example, there's still at least, I don't know, eight or nine litres of nettle soup in the freezer. It's a very comforting feeling to know that. It is. And it's a very simple soup. I mean, it's just a big half a bag or half a basket of nettles, a, couple of carrots and a couple of onions maybe a potato and a, sometimes a few left leftovers go in sometimes a handful of parsley or or spinach if it needs uh, cutting in the garden 
Uh, then you've got this vibrant green soup, whizzed up till it's fairly smooth, but still a little bit of texture. And sometimes we pop a poached egg in it. That's always nice. And we've got some of the lovely sourdough toast on the side. So always a treat. That sounds amazing. A virtuous treat. A very virtuous. And also something that, you know, puts you in touch with the world outside your door. That's, I mean... I love foraging and, and the nettles are literally the easiest forage. There's a, there's a patch of nettles about 10 yards outside the door. And we actually strim the nettles as they start to get kind of a bit ropey in, in kind of May. So we get a second crop later in the summer, which you treat it as a cut and come again vegetable. This might be a very stupid question, but what is the trick to picking nettles without getting stung? Rubber gloves. Okay. Without a doubt. <laughs> okay. None of this grasping the nettle nonsense. Uh, a stout pair of rubber gloves or a good pair of gardening gloves and just picking that top crown of leaves and then remembering that, you, you know, you keep, need to keep the gloves on while you're washing them too because even a wet nettle can sting. Ooh, okay, that's a good tip. Right, now, Hugh, please can we talk about Christmas because The River Cottage has got a new book out talking all things Christmas and it's beautiful. I actually thought it was really interesting that the section on the sort of day itself was relatively small and, and straightforward, though with interesting twists. So serving the turkey legs as a coco vin, and then having the crown roasted separately for, you know, more ease. And then other original ideas like marrow chutney, the birdseed baubles, the slow gin sauce, um, honey and ginger switchel. But I need to know, is that how you do traditionally do your turkey? Well, this book is a, a, a co-creation. And in fact, the, most of the credit and praise must go to Lucy Brazier, who's a member of our River Cottage team with, with a great passion for Christmas and a great maker of crafty things throughout the seasons. She's really good at laying down hedgerow booze and making special treats uh, for, for, you know, in the autumn that pop up at Christmas. And she's also brilliant at, at doing sort of handmade decorations and, and all of that. So I really just, I just have a guest slot in this book where my own Christmas prejudices uh, are given a, a little airing, yeah. <laughs> uh, which I'm uh, always very happy to share. The tip about the, the, the coco vin leg of turkey is absolutely mine. That just is a brilliant way. One of the problems with the turkey is if you really want that dark meat cooked, there's a danger that the breast is is going to be dry. But that dark meat lends itself. And a, t a pair of turkey legs actually can, can really feed lots of people with some rich dark meat. So it goes into a pot with bacon and root vegetables. And it also gives you the gravy because the juice of your turkey legs au vin is a fantastic gravy for the rest of the birds. So, so that's definitely... Uh, one of the options for the FW Christmas. Uh, the other is is roast beef. And that's a very uh, special thing because we do raise our own beef. And beef is a, a clearly a wonderful meat, but one that we are rightly questioning the environmental footprint of. But beef reared from grazing suckler herds is a more sustainable choice than uh, store-fed beef, which is fed on grain. And of course, on a global scale, more of the grain crops that we grow are fed to animals than are fed to people. And that obviously is another reason why why beef has such a questionable uh, environmental profile. So it's a super special treat. We raise just a few animals here at home and we tend to go for a four rib of beef on the bone at some point over the Christmas holiday. And that, that is a super special meat event in our calendar. But I'm also very keen to look after my vegetarian and vegan friends. And so a, a lovely centerpiece with, that I've developed uh, over the last few years is a whole roast pumpkin filled with lots of other delicious roast veg and topped with toasted nuts and spices with a really delicious vegan gravy. It's very important to get that saucy bit right when you're making something special and vegetarian for a big occasion. So what's the secret to a great vegan gravy? I'm happy to say the recipe for the vegan gravy is also in Christmas at River Cottage. The secret is a, a, a little collection of ingredients that are in the background of the gravy, and you won't quite taste any of them individually, but together they, they create this nice umami hit, this savoury note, uh, which is what you really need and expect from a gravy. One of them is mushrooms, and browning the mushrooms to get plenty of flavour, along with little bit of onion and carrot, the classic stock veg as well, get browned. Then you've got a couple of surprising ingredients. 
uh, or surprising to some perhaps, a little bit of coffee. Not so much that it tastes of coffee, but a dash of strong coffee gives you that slightly kind of burnt background that's very important for gravy. A generous dash of red wine and then a little touch of soy sauce. That's very clever. These things together do really build that dark, rich background that makes your gravy feel very savoury and you know, that buzzword umami that everybody likes to use these days, you need that in your gravy and, and you get it in this recipe. I would never have thought of coffee. That's really clever. And Hugh, I can't not ask you about the Christmas sandwich. Can you talk me briefly through yours? Yeah, I will put anything in a sandwich. And the other thing that is a slightly fancier version of the Christmas sandwich is the Boxing Day focaccia, which, which all sorts of leftover roasts, uh, roast veg and bits of stuffing and even bits of turkey can be pressed into the top of a Boxing Day focaccia. So that's if you... If you've got friends coming around uh, who who might think that offering them a Boxing Day sandwich is perhaps a little bit undignified, that you haven't really thought about them. But the Boxing Day for catch is a great way to use up the leftovers. And you've got warm from the oven with that lovely little uh, olive oil flavour in there as well. And that's in the book, isn't it? It is. Yes, it is. I mean, personally, very happy with a a cold turkey sandwich uh, with a little bit of homemade mayonnaise and a sprinkle of capers. Yes, that sounds good. Right, let's quickly talk about the sixth desert island dish. What is your go-to dinner party dish? Again, I found this a hard one because I like to cook new things and try things out. And I I do have a a few old favourites that that I come back to. But one thing that's, it's more of a kind of regular feature of, it's sort of a side dish. There's a slightly cheaty answer to the question, but more and more when we're entertaining I really like to put big sharing plates on the table and I like to big up the veg, whatever's sort of seasonal and of the moment. And if we've got a vegetarian or vegan guests coming around, I'd probably go all out veggie or vegan because in the end, that's just the most inclusive way to feed everybody because everybody can eat that food. And so I rather than do something special in inverted commas for a vegetarian or vegan guest, I'm more likely to go all out. So I love huge, great platters of of roasted veg. So at the moment, that would be things like squash and parsnips and sprouts, a mixture of greens. It's amazing. There's so few veggies that can't be roasted. And this time of year is a great time because you've got lots of roots, lots of brassicas. You've got shallots and onions. They can all go in the tray together and share flavours. Don't overcrowd the pan when you're when you're tray roasting veg because you want everything to get nicely browned and caramelised. And if you heap things too much on top of each other, then they'll start to sort of sweat a bit and get get a little bit wet rather than properly toasty and roasty and caramelised. And then massive salads of sort of things, again, combining different things. So something leafy, something rooty, and then some toasted seeds. There's a classic at this time of year for me is very thinly sliced red cabbage with grated carrots or grated parsnips, a little bit of apple or pear. That can be delicious roasted too. And then a sprinkling of toasted pumpkin seeds. And if you put those pumpkin seeds in the oven with a dash of tamari soy sauce and then turn them around a couple of times while they're roasting for just about seven or eight minutes, you get this amazing umami, almost marmite flavour on the pumpkin seeds that brings a lovely savoury note. So... You know, much as I do, you know, put out lovely bits of roast meat that we've reared ourselves, roast chickens, roast uh, leg of lamb that started our conversation and uh, was destined to be turned into a shepherd's pie. I was a bit wary of serving at a dinner party in case there's not enough left for the shepherd's pie. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's not a risk you're willing to take. Not really, but it's always a priority to put really vibrant, colourful veg on the table and just remind everyone how delicious it can be. So a, a zesty salad of very thinly sliced red cabbage, grated carrots, and, and and maybe some raisins, which I might have soaked in apple juice or even cider, and then the umami pumpkin seeds on top. Goes down very well at this time of year. Yeah. On Desert Island Dishes, we have a cookbook corner, so I'd love to know, what is your most treasured cookbook? Again, such a hard one. There are cookbooks that have... That have it's got to be one of the ones that, that you know, that's been on my shelf. It uh, doesn't come out quite as often as it used to, but it's taught me so much. It was a really close shave 
between Constance Spry and Elizabeth David. But Elizabeth David has just edged it, probably, but almost certainly really, because I did actually meet her, which was a, an amazing moment when I was cooking at the River Cafe. She, she had booked in for lunch one day. And as you mentioned, I, I was often in charge of the, the puds. And we used to make something which we called Elizabeth David's chocolate cake. And it's a really simple chocolate cake made with ground almonds instead of flour, a little dash of coffee and lots of chocolate, melted chocolate. And it's it's rich. You know, it's it's meant it eats really well as a dessert. It's kind of fudgy. It's not a light sponge. It's a fudgy, rich cake. And it had been on the River Cafe menu for quite a while and I'd cooked it quite a few times and I was told to make it so so we'd have it on the menu for Elizabeth David should she choose to order the cake uh, that's in her book and I had a dilemma because I had actually tweaked the original recipe I'd simply been putting quite a lot more chocolate in it just because that you know that was the style and also because it had to compete sometimes I mean we didn't used to put them both on at the same time but it had to to kind of stand up against the River Cafe's legendary chocolate nemesis and so in order to make sure that it was just as chocolatey and just as delicious as the chocolate nemesis i used to put a bit of extra chocolate in so i thought well do am i going to take the chocolate out again because elizabeth david's coming to lunch and i need to do it exactly by the book and i decided not to i decided to leave in the extra chocolate i just thought it is there i say it in this chocolate loving world that we (laughs) now live in all the better for it Anyway, she came in and everyone was just hushed and amazed and just thrilled to have her in the restaurant. But all I could think about was, was she going to order the the cake? And of course she did. And not only did she order the cake, she asked to see the chef who cooked it. (gasps) Hugh, that's so stressful. So I was summoned to her table. I was just completely in awe, uh, thrilled to be there standing in front of her, but also terrified about what she might say about the cake. And she looked at me and said, ah, so you made the Elizabeth David chocolate cake. Uh, I thought, what's coming, what's coming? But you didn't quite follow my recipe, did you? <laughs> she said. I said, uh, uh, no, I, I didn't actually. We, we just make it with, I, I said we. It was yeah. like, <laughs> we actually put a little bit more chocolate than in the original recipe because people seem to love chocolate so much these days that... We just think it's a, a good way to do it. And she said, well, I thought it was delicious. Oh, phew. <laughs> good idea, she said. So that was a huge relief and a very, very memorable moment in my life. Yeah. Never forget that. That makes me like her even more, that that was her reaction. Well, she had a reputation for being quite fierce and, you know, taking, you know, t- speaking her mind, uh, as she always did in her books, of course, uh, about food. So I didn't feel I was just being let off or or, or being given. I, I mean, I felt that she said that and she meant it. And that's great. Phew. Yeah, no, she would have told you otherwise. <laughs> I think she would. We're on to the final seventh desert island dish. What is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island? So hard. So hard. So many things uh, I could have said. And we, you know, we barely talked about fish, uh, which is one of my favourite things to eat. Um, we mentioned the mackerel bap. I'm glad we got that in because I, I love mackerel and maybe barbecued mackerel would be a contender. But the last dish, I can have one plate of food. You can have a meal. Oh, well, do you know what? I've, I've taken it at face value. Okay. And I'm <laughs> plumping for a single dish a plate of food or in this case maybe a bowl i'm gonna have apple crumble Ooh, good choice it's partly i suppose the time of year we're talking i mean the 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 apples are pretty much we've had so much high wind recently that that the the last of the apples are pretty much on the ground but we've stored lots of them i i crunch an apple up for breakfast most mornings and at the weekends we're cooking lots of apple puds, but we keep it simple. My daughter makes a wonderful apple tart. Recently, she's just started making apple crumble. And we do this thing where we make the crumble separately. We, we pre-crisp the crumble before putting it over the apple. And the apple is often a mixture of bramleys, which obviously cook down very nicely to a sort of silky apple puree. But I also put in some eating apples, some thicker slices or, or chunks of chunkier apple 
I fry quickly to caramelize them a bit and then stir into the brownie apple. And then the crumble goes on top and it goes into the oven and you get that lovely sort of gooey bit where the crumble meets the apple. So the crumble is nice and crisp. That's guaranteed because it's been crisped up in advance. And by the way, there's a little bit of ground almonds in the crumble and some oats just to give it that real toastiness. Don't like it when the when the crumble gets too pastryish. It's really nice to have a little bit of ground almonds and oats in there to get that crumble really crumbly. Yeah, sorry, I actually feel my tummy rumbling. <laughs> Me too. I feel like that is a very worthy contender for a single desert island dish. But I just think when you say the word crumble, I mean rhubarb crumbles be it's right up there as well. When you say the word crumble, if you haven't just eaten, your tummy just does rumble. It's partly because it rhymes, and it's partly because you know how <laughs> delicious it is. But as I'm t- talking about this apple crumble, that's my last dish before being cast off. Uh, my tummy is indeed rumbling. Yeah, I, li- <laughs> I like the notion that it's because it rhymes. Hugh, those are your desert island dishes. Thank you so much for sharing them with us. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. So there we have it. Another delicious day of Desert Island Dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. If you don't already, come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes and you can sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of different recipes at DesertIslandDishes.co. Thank you so much for listening. Have a very happy Christmas. We will be back in January with some more brilliant guests for you. And in the meantime, look after yourselves and I hope you will enjoy those Christmas sandwiches. Bye.